Out of reverence for the word of the Lord, would you please stand as I read from the book of Jonah in the Old Testament? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord set a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. They cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. I am so excited about this book because I feel like this book gives us a chance to have an amazing view of who God is, an amazing view of who we are in relationship to God. Um, but the, the key thing that, like, as a byline for the whole series to the series in Jonah is the tagline, uh, Jonah and the God of the Awkward Call. This calling upon Jonah, this thing that, that God is, is calling uh, him to do, is, is far less domesticated and, um, and docile than sometimes we allow it to become. Uh, a lot of us, how many of you grew up in church? You grew up going to church? All right. How many of you actually also, additionally, in addition to going to church, you also went to Sunday school? Okay, Sunday school. All right. Now, if you are over the age of 30... 
more than likely, when you went to Sunday school, they wanted to teach you um, these Bible stories, but they realized that kids' attention span was not going to stand up to just teaching. It had to have be visual. So what did Sunday school teachers do to help bat home the concept of a Bible story to make it more visual? How did they make it? I mean, they didn't have video. So what did they do? Bingo, flannel graph. Now, a couple years back, we um, did a series, and in that, we, we hit a couple of the Bible stories, and we flannel graphed them. And so I looked up our um, old series um, to, to try to retell the, 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 the story of Jonah visually, and so we've got it. So this is going to be the t- 2016 version of a flannel graph. So enjoy. If you never went to Sunday school, now you get to catch up. This is like the remedial course right here. All right, so first off, what we got here is this. We've got Israel. And, we, and Jonah, right, right, you get the whole area mid-east right there. Right there, smack dab in the middle is Israel. At this time, we have the northern and the southern kingdom. Jonah ministers right there. And today, Jonah is going to be played by Pastor Jason. All right, so Jonah is in the northern kingdom. God calls him to where? Nineveh. That's right. He's called to go to Nineveh. Does Jonah go to Nineveh? No. He goes where? Okay, now I didn't know geographically, growing up looking at flannel graphs, I didn't know geographically where Nineveh was. But if you look at, and today, where Tarshish was, this other place that, that Jonah runs away from, Tarshish is someplace, they don't exactly know exact, the exact location, because Tarshish basically means to smelt so is this this refining area? So it could have been a couple of locations, but the most likely area is over by either Spain or Great Britain. It is literally geographically the exact opposite direction from where God had called him to go. And not only the exact opposite direction, as far away as an ancient person could possibly go and get to, basically he's going to the other side of the world. Now, we, we understand in Scripture that this actually took place. He goes down to Joppa, and he books a ship with these sailors to go to where? Tarshish. And so he gets the sailors, he gets on and pays them the fare. Within a couple of, uh, we don't know exactly how long it takes, but the weather starts getting rough, the tiny ship was tossed, and all of a sudden, the, the, the sailors are freaking out. They don't know what's going on, but they know that this is bad. They go down below, they find Jonah, Jonah's sleeping, they tell him to pray to his God, eventually it surfaces that Jonah is the problem. He is the problem, they say, what do we do, how do we solve this problem? He says, chuck me overboard. They try to figure out another way to do it, but they can't, and so they decide to do it. They throw him overboard, and God provides what? A great fish, a massive, big old honking fish. And so sure enough, the fish swallows Jonah. And in the belly of this fish, this great fish, that's where Jonah has his come to Jesus moment. That's where he has this this recognition of, okay, you know what? (laughs) Clearly, clearly I was wrong. I need to turn this around. And, and And has this beautiful song, this poem within the belly of this great fish. Well, God causes that fish to go take Jonah right back to where he came from, is able to bring him to a beach, upchuck him right there onto the beach, and eventually the story that we learned in Final Graph ends with Jonah going to Nineveh, preaching the word to them, and they, repent, they, they turn around. They repent of their sins, they repent of their idolatry, and all of a sudden, it's amazing, and it's wonderful, and that's how we end the story of Jonah. And if that's how we end the story of Jonah, we have absolutely ripped the scripture so out of context and have cheated the story so much because within that flannel graph story, we miss the whole ending of the book, which is not Jonah saying, woohoo, these people came to God. 
It's Jonah being absolutely frustrated and ticked off at God for actually having mercy on them. You end the book of Jonah with Jonah upset to the point where he says, I wish I would die. You know what? This is so typical you. This is so typical. I knew you would do this. This is why I ran in the first place. I knew that if, if you actually had me go and tell them that they could repent and avoid judgment, they might just do it. And I knew you were just the type of God that would actually pull that off. That's how Jonah ends. This book is not this morality tale of, woo, this is what happens if you actually have the guts to go and share your, your faith with someone. It's formulaic. You go, you find someone you really don't want to share your faith with, share your faith, and they're going to receive God just like the Ninevites did. It's not the point of the story. As we're going through Jonah, we realize that the point of the story isn't Nineveh. The primary place that God wants to do transformation isn't the hearts of the pagans. It's in the heart of the one who is already a chosen person of God and how backwards and messed up and darkened his heart was. This story is more than a story. And even though lots of scholars have a difficult time with it actually scientifically being pulled off, I mean, come on, seriously, a a great fish swallows this guy and he lives for three days in the the belly of this fish? It's interesting that Jesus actually uh, affirms that this took place. Um, he, He equates the fact that he would be in the grave for three days, just like Jonah was in the fish for three and so Jesus, Jesus holds us up as, as an event that's trustworthy and, and worth banking on. And so that's why we, we do so as well. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to actually open them up to that passage uh, of Jonah chapter 1. And really, today we're only going to be looking at this, the first couple of verses. If you have notes, great. If you want to take notes in your Bible, awesome. Um, but we're just going to unpack each aspect of this passage to try to understand what it is that God is saying to the original listeners and to us. So the first thing we see here is that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Okay, the word of the Lord came to him because he was a prophet. Uh, He's a prophet, and a prophet is someone who speaks divine words to human ears. This is a person that God chooses to be the guy that goes and pronounces judgment or good news or even the, the, the people that said one day there's going to come someone who's going to ultimately take care of the weight of our sin. It's not going to be us and it's not going to be sacrifice. One day this is going to happen. That was prophets. God talked to them and told them to say this and these guys just were, were the, the voice box of God to a people. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And, and Jonah is, is an individual. We understand this guy is an actual person, a st- historical person on the timeline of history. Jonah, his name means dove, which is, which is kind of interesting because again, in Old Testament literature, a dove was this agent of peace. When Noah is on the ark, the way that they know that things are okay and secure is that a dove comes back with the olive branch. Peace is restored. We can, our security is here. God has taken care of us. So God sends his dove out to Nineveh, this pagan place, to pronounce this judgment. Now, it says he's son of Amittai. So again, it's identifying. We want you to know who this is. And this is the thing I didn't know. I didn't realize that, that where Jonah was, was ministering to, I knew it was in the northern kingdom. I didn't realize that Jonah was a prophet from Galilee. He, just, just north of Nazareth, that's where Jonah was a, was a prophet and prophesying. So he's, that's, that's what he is. His, his vocation is, is a prophet, and that's where he's from. He's from Galilee. Now, his, his objective, his, his destination was to go to the great city of Nineveh. And when it says great there, it's not talking about awesome and good and wonderful. It's talking about significant. 
And Nineveh was a place that was incredibly significant. It was significant for a couple of reasons. Um, it was significant in influence. At this time, the Assyrian Empire is, is, is just this massive network of cities, and it was a war horse. And though Nineveh was not always the capital, um, it wasn't the capital the, over the whole time, it was always super, super important and significant. When I was growing up in California, um, when I thought of Illinois, I, if you would have asked me at, at eight years old, what's the cap, or even 15 maybe, what's the capital of Illinois, I probably would have told you Chicago because I didn't know about Springfield. Because even though Springfield is our capital, when people most think of, of Illinois, they're thinking of the Bulls, they're thinking of our sports team, they're thinking maybe of violence, but they're thinking of Chicago. They're thinking, and, that, and, that, and so that's, even if it's not the capital of, of our state, it is incredibly influential and, incred- and when the world thinks about Illinois, that's what they think of. When the world were, was thinking of the Assyrian Empire and all that they, they were about, they said, if you want to know one place that just absolutely capitalizes on who we are, it's Nineveh. They were the most powerful city in the world at the time. Archaeologists have found uh, remains that date back to 4,500 BC. So this place was established, massively important. It's a city that was not only significant in influence, but it was also significant in crimes against humanity. Um, and this is, this is some difficult stuff I'm about to read to you, but this is the account of what Nineveh, and, and as being the, the head of the Assyrian Empire, was all about. James Bruckner, a uh, commentator, says this, The Assyrian kings were proud of their cruel and terrible reputation and went to great trouble and expense to record their exploits for posterity. Archaeologists have uncovered many reliefs, large stone wall panels with carved depictions of grisly post-battle scenes, which were erected in palaces so that they could be seen daily. In addition, written descriptions of post-battle tortures of prisoners were preserved on obelisks and cylinder pillars. Discovered in these pictorial and written displays are gruesome details and horrific boasting. It is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we have ever known. Assyrians boasted of their cruelty to captured peoples following the siege of their town or city, and their victims were not limited to combatants. Records brag of live, live dismemberment, often leaving one hand attached so they could shake it before the person died. They, were, uh, they made parades of heads, requiring friends of the deceased to carry them elevated on poles, they boasted of their practice of stretching live prisoners with ropes so that they could be skinned alive. The human skins were then displayed on city walls and on poles. They commissioned pictures, pictures of their post-battle tortures where, where piles of heads, hands and feet and heads impaled on poles, eight heads on a stake were displayed. They pulled out the tongues and testicles of live victims and burned the young boys and girls alive. Those who survived the sack of their city were tied in long lines of enslavement and deported to Assyria, Assyrian cities to labor on building projects. Tens of thousands in hundreds of cities suffered this fate over the 250 reign of terror of the Assyrian Empire. And Nineveh, Nineveh was the, the, the front. It, it was the model home of this whole thing. That's where God is calling Jonah to. When we hear about the things on television that ISIS does to both Christians and Muslims alike, whether it's to little boys and girls or to men, the live torture, the live dismemberment, the live beheading, um, the, the open air beheading, all that. 
When we hear about that, that is kindergarten class compared to Nineveh. Ironically, where we hear a lot of stuff today taking place is a town called Mosul. You may have heard Mosul um, in the news or Mosul beheadings. Mosul is the modern day, literally the same geographic real estate piece of land as Nineveh. Mosul is Nineveh. Back then, it was even worse. They were significant in influence, significant in crimes against humanity, and they were significant in their threat against Israel. They were very clear that we are going to take over the world, and Israel, you are next. And it was. They come down, and they totally take out Samaria, and then in 722, they finish the job and take out the northern kingdom of Israel. And what we now know as the ten lost tribes of Israel, they were lost because the Assyrian Empire came down and did what the Assyrian Empire were known to do and were professional at doing. Even people groups throughout the ancient world that were known for their abuse and inhumane treatment of people— looked at the Assyrian Empire and said, man, those guys are messed up. It was that bad. Significant influence, significant in crimes against humanity, significant in their threat against Israel. So what does God want Jonah to do? He wants them to preach against it. All right, well, that's not what I'm talking about. We want, we're going to preach against this evil. We're going to bring them down because, and, and, it, and it's very clear, because its wickedness has come up before me. In Nahum chapter 3, verses 1, 10, and 19, it talks about Nineveh's cruelty and their inhumane treatment of people and their absolute pride against God. It was almost like, yeah, we can treat your creation of humanity any way we want, and it doesn't matter, and you can't do anything about it. And God said, this arrogance has risen up to me, and and we're going to deal with this. Jonah, you're going to preach against this. And so just in the first two verses, we get a chance to see. We see the man. The man is Jonah, the prophet Jonah. The destination, the great city, significant city in Nineveh. The mission, your mission is to go and preach against it. And the reason is because its wickedness has come up before me. So we have to ask the question, why in the world would Jonah bail on that mission? Why in the world would Jonah chicken out from that? Two reasons. One, I think that if Jonah was speaking, he would say, well, first off, I'm afraid, and second off, I'm a bigot. I'm afraid because of everything that Errol just said. I mean, would we, any of us give him any flack for being afraid to go to that people? Because God wasn't saying, I'm sending a military group with you, and they're going to, we got the best military, and my Shekinah glory is going to be right behind you, freaking people out, and everyone's just going to be like, oh, okay, whatever you say. He doesn't say that. He's like, you're going solo, Jonah. Boom. Go to Nineveh. None of us would give him any issue with being afraid. But as we read through the book of Jonah, we realize that this is not his primary reason for bailing. I mean, it was part of it, sure, but it was not his primary reason. We find out as we read through the book of Jonah that his primary reason is that he's a bigot. How, God, I cannot possibly imagine you forgiving that people. We are your chosen people. I am known. I'm a known prophet in Israel. I'm a, I, I, the prophecy that I put out there actually co comes true. And oftentimes, it's good news. So people like me. I'm the only guy who's been serving in this, as a prophet in this time frame for 40 years. The only guy. I'm the primary person. I, I pronounced to, I, I had the prophetic proclamation to our people that King Jeroboam II was going to actually recover land that, that the Assyrian Empire had. That, and that happened. And people loved me. And now you want me to go back to the Assyrian Empire, like into the heartbed of it, and pronounce something over them where they could actually repent? And if they actually repented, you would have mercy on them? Do you realize what that would do to me? 
So God, let me just be clear here. The reason I'm bailing on this is because number one, I go and my life is literally on the line. And there's very little hope that I'm going to survive this. Two, if I do survive this and these people actually repent, I go home a dead man. I'm the biggest traitor to my people. Our biggest enemy I went to and I brought the mercy of God to. You want me to do that? My reputation is toast. I might as well not even go home. So no, forget it. With Buddhist leanings, because I believe in karma, and God, these people are evil. They have this coming to them. If you're saying that if I don't pronounce this judgment over them, giving them the opportunity to repent, that means that judgment's going to come. So if I just go the opposite direction, you're a man of your word, God, you're going to bring that judgment against them, and they deserve it. These people have a karma. This, this is karma, God. I know we're not into that, but this is karma. These people have it coming to them. We have every reason to believe that Jonah had very good reason to rebel and run away from God. He was afraid, and, and he was, God's sending the most patriotic person into the heartbed of the enemy. I mean, we, again, let's try to contextualize this today. Let's, not, let's just think of this as, this, let's think about ISIS. Again, we're thinking about Mosul, so let's just think about ISIS. But instead of like Pastor Jason going over to ISIS to proclaim this thing, let's not say it's Jason. Let's think of someone who's like the most patriotic person we could possibly imagine, Toby Keith. And Toby Keith is going on over there, and he's going to pronounce this. And he's, he's the guy, the guy who sang courtesy of the red, white, and blue, because he's got this great, awesome orchestration of how we're just going to bring judgment, and we're going to rain down fire upon you. You guys mess with the wrong people. Bada boom, bada bing. Go Israel. He is the guy that God chooses to go into the heartbed to pronounce something that could actually end up in mercy. This is high risk. Incredibly high risk. All right, I, so I need your help for this. For us to understand this, this section right here, I, when I point to you, I need you just to say that really, really loud, okay? So when I point to you, just say high risk. Okay, one, two, three. High risk. Perfect. That was actually way better than Saturday service. Good job. High risk. Okay, so you guys over here, you got something else to say. You're not going to say high risk. You guys are going to say low gain. Ready? One, two, three. Low gain. Okay, so. Okay, my mom's favorite phrase growing up for me was this, high-risk, low-gain behavior. It started when I was a little kid. I mean, it was one of the first things I, you know, you remember things that your parents say to each other, you know, the sweet, wonderful things or whatever. One of the things I remember my mom saying to my dad was, Dennis, this is high-risk, low-gain behavior. My dad would be standing there, we're at the Grand Canyon, and he's got one of us, and he's holding us over the edge. And he's like, Jeanette, quick, take the picture. Take the picture, Jeanette. My mom's like, Dennis, that's not smart. That's not good. Dennis, this is that. We're, you're right next to the sign that says danger, loose footing. I know. I know. This is going to be awesome. Take the picture. Take the picture, Jeanette. I got the kid. Come on. I mean, my mom's like, Dennis, just, I, I'm not moving until you take the picture. Okay, okay. This is terrible. And I remember her saying, high risk, low gain behavior. And those words continued on as I started getting older. I remember when I was riding a bicycle, learning how to ride a bike, but I didn't want to just learn how to ride a bike. I wanted to stand up, you know, like, on the seat and then like lift up one leg up in the sky because everyone was into BMX and that was the only thing I could do. But when my mom saw it, what did she say? Behavior. She's like, Errol, this is not smart. This is behavior. You have a ton of risk with very little gain. There's nothing to gain from this. Who cares? And I remember when my mom found out about the fact that 
when I got into high school and I started learning how to drive and we're like, we, we would race through San Pedro and we would just like race after each other in our different cars, these old like 70s gas guzzler cars with big engines and we're like flying and we're like, we'd just run up, you know, our cars are coming like against each other, like 90 miles per hour, we're like right next to each other. We'd roll down the windows. We start chucking everything in the car at each other, like eggs. Someone had a fire extinguisher. It was amazing. When my mom hears about this a couple days later from one of the other kid's parents, she tells me, Errol, this is not smart. This is behavior. This is high risk, low gain behavior. And, 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 and I, even when I went to college, I go 2,000 miles away from my mom. And I'm in college, I'm a freshman, and so we're bored one January. We're like, let's go and do something fun. And it's like, it's nighttime, let's go, and, let's go to the beach. Why not? It's January in Chicago. And so we're going there, but in order to get to the beach in Ch downtown Chicago, you have to cross something. It's called Lakeshore Drive. None of us have cars. We're walking. And we realize that, like, the crosswalk is way up there. We're like, well, it's no, no problem. There's, a, like, a median divider. It's like a cement thing. But we can crawl over that. No sweat. And so, like, five or six of us, we're like, let's go. And so we're going over there. And we, get, we, like, we wait for the cars to stop going this way. And then we run across the street. And we're straddling the thing to get over. And before we get this other foot over, the cars on the other side start to fly. They're, like, coming super fast. We're like, whoa. And so we're like, okay, we're just going to wait this out. And so the cars are coming. There's no shoulder on Lakeshore Drive. And as the cars are flying, inches from us, we're like, whoa, this is bad, which was bad, but it was worse was the other car started coming the other direction too. So now it's like this. Cars are like, like honking at us. We're screaming like, ah! And in my head, in my head, Jeanette McFadden is saying, behavior. And she was right. And, and it was even worse because once we finally got off Lakeshore Drive, we get over to the beach because the reason we wanted to do this in January was that some of the ice starts to break into um, icebergs. And we were going to see how far we could jump from iceberg to iceberg, how far out on Lake Michigan we could go before falling in. I didn't even have to tell you. That was right there. High-risk, low-gain behavior. That was seared into my brain. And so, and every good parent does this protective thing that puts in their kid, this isn't smart, this isn't safe. And what we do is we bring that in and we tattoo that onto our faith. God must be saying the same thing. God doesn't want me to engage in high-risk, low-gain behavior. He is safe. He wants me to be comfortable. He wants me to be bubble-wrapped and perfectly comfortable and calm. That's his goal in my life is to keep me alive. He wants me to, to be as, as safe and protected and gluten-free as possible. In C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis um, imagines God as this lion. And so when the, the human children go into this land where they're talking to all these different animals, the, the beaver family are talking about Aslan, the great lion. And this is what happens. It's so cool. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is not safe. He is not all about protecting you from difficulty or danger. He's about protecting you from distance. God is not all about protecting you from difficulty or danger. He's about protecting you from distance from him. The call that God puts upon your life and my life will necessarily be difficult and dangerous. It will. And if you're living a Christian life where everything is safe and comfortable, you may not be living a Christian life. 
The call that God has put upon us is difficult and dangerous because God's number one objective is not to protect us from difficulty, but to protect us from distance. Now, just like Jonah, um, we, we need to realize that what God calls us into is not a high-risk, low-gain behavior, but instead he calls us into high-risk, high-gain behavior. High-risk, high-gain behavior. When my goal is the glory of God, obeying what God wants me to do, it will always be risky. But my promise is that ultimately it's always going to be a gain, even if the risk means loss right now, loss of friends, reputation, whatever. If whatever the loss is, the gain, the long-term gain is what's important. So what we're going to do right now is, is recognize that Jonah had excuses. He had excuses to bail on, on the call of God. And we as Christians do the same thing. We may not be as uh, bold or um, blunt as saying, well, I'm, I'm just afraid of doing what you want me to do. And we may not say I'm a bigot or whatever, but we, we may have other excuses that sound incredibly spiritual. In fact, we're going to talk about three excuses we can kick to the curb. If what Jonah is saying about God is true, we can take these three excuses that you may have been handicapped by and just stop using them. You, your, your faith may have been growing for a certain amount of time, but all of a sudden it hit like a plateau because you used one of these three excuses. Like these excuses are killing your faith. It's keeping you at this child, uh, child level where it's not childlike faith, which is open and bold, but, but more of an adult child type faith, which is just immature. Uh, what I want to encourage, I, I would love it if we walk out of here today and we're no longer using any of these three excuses anymore with regard to what God has called us to do. We come up with excuses that distance us from proximity to God and his call. And the first excuse is this. The first excuse is that I'm waiting for a sign. I'm waiting for a sign. I'm waiting on a sign from God. I, I, I'm going to, you know, God, God is, you know, all throughout the Bible, God uses signs. I mean, there was, there was like the star, the star with, with Bethlehem. I mean, people get healed. That's what I'm waiting for. I'm going to take action when I see a sign from God. When I see this sign from God, all of a sudden I'm going to step into this and I'm going to actually do that. And that's great. God does use signs in Scripture. And you may be someone that God has used some type of sign for. Like, I, 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 was, I was running away from God, but all of a sudden this took place and, I, and I, I felt like this is a sign from God. I should get back with him. Awesome. Those things do happen. But God's primary way of dealing with us and leading us is not with signs. It's with, with people that are actually um, recognizing that everyday obedience comes from just knowing what God is saying to us in Scripture, having the Holy Spirit open that up to us, and being affirmed by other believers. Which means that you have been given, and actually this generation has been given far more signs about what God wants you to do than any other generation just because we have more access to God's Word. That's awesome. That's huge. And because of that, we can actually walk with more boldness. But sometimes it seems like right now we're just the opposite because we're kind of waiting for signs. There are people who wait for signs to take action, but they're called astrologers, not Christians. We, 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 Christians are people who take what we know from what God has given us and we daily in the mundane, with signs or without, take action and step into it. If you're waiting for a sign from God, you're going to miss out daily. You're going to miss out daily on endeavors of actually obeying God and seeing him work through you. You're going to miss God if you're waiting for that. So I want to encourage you to take this excuse and just don't use it anymore. Um, and again, if you're, if you're like, man, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to go on the mission trip, but then all of a sudden this thing came through. So I, I read this as a sign from God. That's, that's wonderful. But don't think that that's God's primary way of leading you. 
God's primary way of leading you is you sitting there and recognizing this is what God has called me to. This is right. This is what he speaks into me to do. And I'm going to do it. I'm not waiting for a sign. The second is excuses similar to that, which is that I'm waiting for an open door. Um, or, or that I'm recognizing maybe this isn't what God wants me to do because it seems to be a closed door. Not every open door is from God. Not every closed door is an indication God is, is not wanting you to do something. Here's what we do oftentimes. We're waiting for an open door or we're looking at, at challenges as closed doors. This, is, this was Jonah's problem. See, what God was calling him to do and, God, and Jonah's notion of what God should do were in conflict with each other. God should make this easier for me. This is, this is a bridge too far. This is like, this is a call too big. If God really wanted me to do this, then, then it's going to be something that's going to be, it should be something that's far easier. And sometimes we do this. Man, you know, I really felt like God wanted me to share my faith. I really felt like God wanted me to uh, actually go on this, go on this mission trip, step into ministry, forgive my, my spouse. But it's just too difficult right now, so I'm waiting for an open door. Right now, it just feels like it's a closed door. And if it's a closed door, maybe God doesn't want me to do it when it's something that God clearly calls us to do. We, we can't be living in that, in that situation or doing that because when we do that, we forget, the, we forget the fact that God always works through closed doors. As we go through Scripture, we see that God works through the closed doors of injustice. People that have got decades of injustice heaped upon them, and yet God is still working. We have people who are, not, who are not healed. They have disease and they are not healed. And God works through the closed door of that. We have people who are constantly persecuted for their faith. If you look in the New Testament, has how, the Christianity, how Christianity exploded and the gospel starts stretching out, these people, this was exploding with closed door after closed door after closed door. Now, were there open doors? Yeah. And praise God for those. But God's primary way of working is not through open doors. It's through difficulty. The closed doors in, lives, in, in life, where we say, this is a closed door, but I'm going to continue through it. Imagine if we were back in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is praying there. This is on, on the eve of his crucifixion, and he's, he's praying in, in the garden. And the disciples just come up to him and just put their hand on him. They're seeing the blood coming down like tears and sweat off of his face, and they just put their hand on him and say, Jesus, you know, we're, there's some guards coming here. I think they're going to arrest you. Maybe this is God letting you know this is a closed door. We shouldn't do this. Why don't we wait for an open door when, when maybe the, the conditions and the climate in our country are a little bit more, well, just a little bit more open to your message? Because right now, I think that we're having some friction with the government. This, maybe we should just take this a step back. God's closing the door. No! Of course it was a closed door. A close, of course it was challenging. But that does, was no indication that God was like, well, maybe we need to shut this down. In fact, it was the indication, this is where we not only recognize that God is our refuge, but God is also our strength. That he gives us the strength to continue on. One passage that just highlights this just amazingly is Romans chapter 8. Paul saying, and we know that in all things God works for the, go, for the good of those who love him. Now this is a passage... Man, it's been used and abused a lot of different ways. Um, you may have been go going through something really tragic, and someone said, hey, it's cool. God works, God, God works for the good um, and for, for all of you. So it's, it's, this must be something for good, which is true, but, it, but it's not the essence of what Paul is saying. Paul is actually saying a better translation of that first verse is, and we know that God works through all things. All things, the shut doors in our life, the closed doors in our life, and the open doors. God works through all things 
for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, if you're a Christian, that, that's you. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So if you're a Christian, God's number one dream for you, his number one objective for you is not keeping you safe or even keeping you alive. God's number one objective for you is that you become like Jesus. That's his number one objective. He, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also what? Glorified. Meaning this, if I look at my life as an opportunity to live out the high-risk, high-gain behavior of faith, that means that my goal is going to be bringing God glory. I'm, I'm, that's my whole goal. Paul says, and you know what God does? As he watches you take these high-risk endeavors, high-risk choices, we are actually making the choice, I'm, you know what, I've been cheating for so long and I'm no longer going to be cheating. Is this going to cost me some, some pleasure? Is this going to cost me some advantage? Is this going to cost me some lead? Absolutely. That I've got so much risk. Is being honest about this sin going to cost me? Absolutely. It's going to cost me greatly. Is, is sharing my faith with someone that I've known for a long time, but I've been silent about my Christianity, going to cost me reputation? High risk. And what God does is he says that regardless of the cost of what this costs you, you have something hardwired to your destiny. And what you have hardwired to your destiny is glory. That God does not simply live to be only to be glorified, but he actually glorifies you. And that is hardwired to your timeline of history. And if it's not in this life and the next life, it will be in the next life. God's ultimate purpose for you is not to keep you safe from difficulty, but to keep you safe from distance. And he is letting us know that, that, that he works through all of the things that we sometimes chalk up to as closed doors from God. He is working in that. What is he working through in your life? What are the excuses that you've put up in front of him? Here's one more, one final excuse that we can chuck, kick to the curb. God will never give me more than I could handle. This is absolute bunk. There was a, a friend of mine um, who's on the, who, was, who was on the mission field, and um, he told me about how his mother-in-law told him, you, I know that it's not God's will for you to go on the mission field. You're leaving a good paycheck, and you're, you're taking our daughter and our grandkids on the mission field away from us, and we know this is not God's will. And he's like, well, how do you, how do you know it's not God's will? And she said, I know it's not God's will because we know from Scripture that God will never give us more than we can handle. And I can't handle the idea of being separated from my grandkids. And this, this, is, a, this is one of the excuses that sounds actually uh, spiritual. It sounds like it's a Bible verse. There's only a problem. This is not in the Bible. Someone may have told you this. Someone may have, when you're going through something difficult, someone may have said God will never give you more than you can handle acting as if this was from the Bible, it is not in the Bible. It is nowhere in the Bible. In fact, it's, it's actually a misunderstanding of another verse in the Bible, this verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except for what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be what? Tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. This verse is saying, you're not going to have any temptation come your way that's going to be irresistible. God, through the Holy Spirit, will give you the ability to get out each and every time. It's going to be a choice that you have to access that power or not. 
but you're never going to be tempted beyond what you could bear. This verse is not saying God will never give you life that is more difficult than you could bear. Life is too much for us to handle. Life is too heavy for us to bear. The essence of the good news in the gospel is life is too much for us, so God came near. Life is too heavy for us. It's too complicated. It's too, sin is too poisonous for us. It's too much for us to handle. Life will always give us more than we can handle. Always. If you've gone through a bout of difficulty or depression or disease, you know that was too much for you to handle. And in those moments, you should have never, ever thought, never, ever thought, you know what, maybe I'm just distant from God because I'm just having so much difficulty for this. If I was a good Christian, this wouldn't bother me as much. This wouldn't be as hard. And that's just not a reality. When we look through Scripture, I see person after person after person saying, this is too much, God. I can't do this. And God's saying, exactly. Exactly. Which is why I came near. Which is why I came to you. Which is why we can look at this verse and say, the message of the gospel is, life is too much for us to handle. And God became man. And he died on the cross to make a way back home for us. Not so one day we could, we could live with him in eternity, but so we could do that, followed up by walking with him every day and watching him transform our life through difficulties and ups and downs, which is why Paul finishes that one passage this way that we read earlier. Oh, I'm sorry, this is different. Um, Joseph's son, this is, this is so cool. I, I, I was reminded about this this past week. In the 70s, there was this missionary named Joseph, and he was over in Romania, and the, 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 his captors took hold of him, and they said, listen, uh, you, you're, you're sending your sermons out on these tapes and they're going all throughout our country. This is illegal. We're going to kill you. And so he says, sir, let me explain how this, I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know, you know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, these sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I better listen again to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak 10 times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. To which his captor turned to the other guy and said, well, we can't kill him now. This guy eventually writes this book called Suffering, Martyrdom, and Rewards in Heaven. Joseph San had this concept in mind that the Christian call was to come and die. My whole life is surrendered to him. High risk, high gain behavior. God's not going to protect me from difficulty each and every time. But even in the most difficult difficulty, he is going to, even in the situations I can't handle, he is going to be glorified. Which is something that we can know because of the fact that Jonah wasn't the only prophet from Galilee. There was another prophet from Galilee, and that was Jesus. Jesus exemplified this to, to the fullest. No matter what you're going through right now, no matter how heavy the call is upon your life that God may have be calling you to do, something today, something as far as talking with someone, something about forgiving someone, something about actually sharing something that you haven't shared before, and you, when you think about it, you're freaked out because of the risk, but you know it's something that God is calling you to do. Step into that. High risk, high gain. No matter what happens, God is actually going to use that for your glory. 
And this is what Paul says at the end of that one passage. For no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul also said in in another place, when I consider our present sufferings, when I compare that with the, the reward that's going to be revealed in us, it has nothing to compare. As a people, this is what I would love to see. I would be so excited about this. If as a church, we actually started to live out a boldness that didn't come from a calculated boldness, but a boldness that said, I want to be the type of person that when God calls me to do something, I do it. No matter what the difficulty is. If God's calling me to stop something, I'm going to do it. Why? Even if it risks me, risks something for me, I'm going to do it because the high gain is God's glory. And I know that God is going to glorify me through the same thing. I can live out this high risk, high gain behavior that God has called each of us into. He called us into a movement and it's going to be difficult. But each and every one of us, if you're a Christian, God has put that upon you to live out and flesh out in its fullest. Let's stand for prayer. Lord, we um, have learned that safety, uh, safety first is a practice we should operate on um, on the work site. We've learned um, how to stay away from rough and sharp edges. Um, we avoid people that are toxic. We stay away from uh, situations that are difficult. And, and everything that we buy, Lord, is, is an attempt to make our life a little bit more comfortable. And Lord, yet your word tells us that your call goes in the exact opposite direction. It goes right into the heart of Nineveh. Lord, there's things that you're calling us to do that are difficult and costly. Give us the courage to trust you. Give us the courage to, to cease using excuses, God, that distance us from the proximity of what you want us to do in your dream for us. Give us the passion to actually have the guts to believe that you're God and, and that we can surrender to you. And God, as we see what you're doing, and even when we don't, let our life aim to be your glory. And it'll be for your glory that we'll give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen.